0: Good morning. Welcome to J's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. It's July 4th. A lot of baseball around today. It's a pretty busy sports weekend in Toronto. Toronto Raptors lose Fred VanVleet, make some other tweaks. Toronto Maple Leafs lose a couple, sign a couple. Some great stuff with Christopher Steeg on the J.D. Bunkus podcast just before we came on air here today. Unfortunately, even if there's all that happening with the Leafs and all that happening with the Raptors, And the Blue Jays are off on Monday. They still make you talk about getting swept on the weekend by the Boston Red Sox come Tuesday. You don't... I thought maybe yesterday's off day, I could just come in and talk about something else. Anything else other than the Jays dropping seven in a row to the Red Sox now, falling to seven and 20 against the American League East. It is a tough go for this team right now. Not because big picture things are terrible. They are two games out of a wild card spot once again here. But what is getting tough is that there really hasn't been a sustained stretch of strong play for this team. They have, they have one six game winning streak back in April. That's pretty good stuff, but that's about it. And they've got a couple of five game losing streaks and, You know, this team has been, they're a little above 500, but they've operated mostly like a 500 team. You go on a mini streak, you go on a mini slump. You win three series in a row, you lose three series in a row. Right now, they sit a couple games over 500, but after the weekend that was, after getting swept by the Boston Red Sox, everything is tighter than it should be. Mention, Jays are now out of a wild card spot two games back. Maybe it's too early for you to worry about that. The bigger concern, though, maybe, is that you have effectively let Boston back into the race via that sweep. Whereas, hey, if you take two out of three from them, they're like seven games back. The race has also gotten a little bit tighter just as the Yankees and Blue Jays have come back down to earth. Uh, So Houston, Yankees, Toronto, Angels, Boston, Seattle, Cleveland, all within... Five and a half games of each other. And that more than the actual record or the actual games behind is the tough part from here because the Jays failing to take advantage of opportunities and, and get comfortable in a wild card spot. It's not so much about, hey, it's you can't make up the two games. It's hey, you've allowed all these teams to hang around. And there are now how many teams did I just mention? Seven teams jockeying for the last two wildcard spots, and we're a couple weeks out here from the trade deadline. And letting teams hang around for too long means those teams are maybe not as eager to sell over the next couple of weeks. Uh, Maybe they are, you know, it has also a tangible impact on the strength of your schedule. Because if you're playing against, you know, Seattle in a couple weeks, say, well, that Seattle team is playing as if they have a chance at the wild card instead of playing as if they're a little further out of it. That's especially true of Boston after they swept them. So uh, things didn't go well. and. The most frustrating part is that two of those games were extremely winnable uh, to give you a quick refresher. If you missed any of it or you are just the type of person who wants to relive it because you're damaged. They lost Friday. They were shut up five, nothing, barely any traction, barely any action on the base paths and uh, a not very good start from Jose Brios, but not terrible. The story in that one was James Paxson was really, really good. And you can live with that. If you lose a game where the other team was just better than you that day, the, their starting pitcher was better than yours that day, that, that's going to happen. Saturday, though, they get a rough Kikuchi start. They make a comeback in the final innings. Vlad actually comes through with the game tying hit, but Bobochette stumbles and then can't decide if he's going or not around third base, whether that was him, Luis Rivera, whatever. The game tying runs thrown out of home plate. Terrible, awful way to lose a game, 7 6. And then Sunday they get the starter out of there pretty quick because of an injury. They effectively face a red Sox bullpen day. And by the way, this red Sox team is not very good. Um, at, at least on the run prevention side, they've been a little below average as a team ERA. They don't have, especially an unplanned bullpen day. You you don't love the way that their bullpen lines up and the Jays couldn't do anything against it for most of the day. Other than Brandon bell, um, Kevin Gosman has an okay start by his standards, but doesn't give you a lot of length. The Red Sox super disciplined in that game. um, You know, making sure that Gosman was working deep into counts and getting that pitch count up. Eric Swanson though has a blip, which has happened a little bit more frequently of late as maybe fatigue sets in for him. And then Jordan Romano allows a game winning home run to Alex Verdugo, who hadn't homered since literally the last time he homered off of Jordan Romano. So, tough one. And and it's hard not to feel like both of those games were very very winnable. And yeah, it, it's missed opportunities. It is it's been the story of the season so far, whether it's hitting with runners in scoring position, whether it's um you know, not being able to take advantage of softer spots in the schedule. Joe Sittel had a great rant. Uh not even rant. He just had a great um uh, statement uh at the end of last game talking about how there is no soft spot in the schedule anymore the blue jays are not playing good enough baseball uh to think like that we'll see how the rest of the league feels we're gonna we're gonna whip around major league baseball today we're gonna talk to clinton yates a little later james fegan to get the chicago side of things chris black will join us in his normal tuesday spot uh but at 11 o'clock and right now what a week for him. It's the NHL draft. It's NHL free agency. We're heading into MLB all-star week. It's John Morosi. John, how are you? Happy fourth.
1: Blake, thank you very much. Uh, Happy Canada day weekend. I know yesterday was, uh, was the holiday in Canada observed, of course, with Canada day falling over the weekend and uh, great to be with you. Excited to also have the Jays coming to town here in Detroit uh, this coming weekend to conclude the first half. I'll be there on Sunday. So, uh, I'll be excited to get a in-person look at the Jays and, and report back to you on that.
0: Well, that'll be that'll be a lot of fun. So, what do you, what do you have planned for today? Is it just you're kind of on? I mean, baseball starts in like an hour right now. Uh, is right. it just a wall-to-wall baseball day for you?
1: A lot of baseball. I'm uh, I'm actually up north uh, in Michigan right now. Uh, sort of our version of cottage country. I've been <laughs> spending the weekend with with my at my parents' cottage up here with them. I uh, brought all my daughters with me. Um, my wife is back in in Ann Arbor uh, working hard at the hospital. So uh th- that's one uh, aspect of of being married to a physician is that over the holidays it might be a holiday but but someone has to mind the shop uh, when uh, when you're married to a doctor. So uh she's there uh doing God's work taking care of patients there and I'm I'm up here uh supervising the kids and their fun so it's it's been uh it's it's been tough to be away from her but certainly uh, proud of the work that she does and, and also uh very happy to see my kids enjoying the time with with my parents so it's all it's all been a, a great few days for us up north
0: well that sounds awesome and uh thank you for taking the time out to join us how, how far north are we talking? Are we talking like marquette michigan are we talking like copper harbor where where like are you basically uh, in, in manitoba
1: at this point no, that that would be an even uh, that would be way up north. Of course, as you know, Blake, I was born up there, so I've got a lot, a lot of great connections to the UP. Uh, where, where of course uh, we've got there's Sioux Michigan and Sioux Canada there at, at the at the bridge there at the, at the Sioux locks. But I, I was so I was born west of there. But I, right now I am speaking to you from beautiful Arenac County, Michigan. Uh, sort of, I grew up in Bay City, which is in Bay County. Arenac is the county just north of that, so uh, I, I'm I'm further north. I think as the crow flies, if you look at the lines of latitude, I am further further north than Toronto in terms of the actual lines of latitude. So I'm up here in beautiful Arenac County, <laughs> Michigan. Now, Tawas Tawas is the nearest quote-unquote major city uh, here at, where we are in Aranat County.
0: Well, that's uh, well. I'm glad it's uh, it's a good weekend for you, and it sounds sounds like a good time there. Um, what is the view of the Toronto Blue Jays from Aranac County? Because things look like they were maybe starting to turn in the right direction a little bit. They get swept by the Red Sox. They've now lost seven to the Sox this year uh, overall, zero and seven, and they're now down to seven and twenty against the American League East. John, I know we we've talked about this team, we've touched base about them uh, a handful of times, but coming off of a weekend like that, um, what's the Aranac County view of this Blue Jays? team
1: (laughs) so here's here's the irony Blake and I was looking at this uh, a little bit earlier today as as I was preparing for the segment to think about what's the big picture view of the Jays and as up and down as they have been they are still tied for the second best record in the American League since the first of June it doesn't feel that way but it's true the numbers say it they're tied for the second-best record uh, in this American League since June began. And, and I think it's very illustrative of where they're at, up and down. Last weekend, I agree, frustrating series to be swept by the by the one team that's below you in the American League East and, and two one-run losses at home, frustrating, without a doubt, frustrating. And, and I think that it's also important to point out that as – if you were if you were to listen to uh, this, you know if you listen to WFAN, let's say in New York, about the Yankees, they would be saying tremendously disappointing year for both of their teams in New York. To be honest, the Mets are sort of a separate conversation, but they would say Yankees, terribly disappointing. Where are they going? No Aaron Judge, and yet the Yankees are ahead of the Jays in the standings. And as we speak right now, the Jays are two games out of a postseason spot in the American League. They really should be better than this. They really should be. Um, and I think this past weekend illustrates how they have fallen short. Uh, their their farm system um, is has been decent, but not necessarily, at the moment at least, producing impact players in the way that Baltimore's is in terms of a division rival and also there are i believe some pieces that could impact this team in the second half or be be solid trade options i think Orellivez Martinez has has somewhat quietly put together a great season since the end of april as april was dreadful but he's been a lot better since then um, they're they're at double A crushing left handed pitching. So where where is his spot potentially, either on this team or as a trade chip? Davis Schneider, look at his numbers at Buffalo, really encouraging. His his at bats have been very very strong. A right handed bat who can play second base in the outfield. Is his defense trustworthy enough to bring him up to where? the Jays feel like he's potentially a, a, a fit for their major league roster. So I, I think the, the names are not necessarily the big names in, in terms of a top 100. Uh, if you look at the Emily pipeline rankings, but I I'm really intrigued by a couple of those bats, Martinez and Schneider, where do they go to the major league roster at some point, or are they trade fits? It's a team that I think Blake overall underwhelming, unfulfilling, and yet, still within striking distance of a postseason berth.
0: That's always the toughest part is everything feels like it's gone poorer than it should. And then you're two games out. And we know last year, of course, in the National League, you know, it's the it's the underseeds. It's the last teams in who who made the big runs and uh, an 87 win Phillies team and things like that. So that's fresh of mind as well. But it could be a frustrating stretch here. So you mentioned a couple prospects who, you know, whether to help the major league roster or get on the um, trade reg- trade radar are around are you starting to get a sense? like the, obviously it's this time of year where we're only four weeks out here from the deadline but with so many teams still kind of in the middle and figuring out if they're going to buy or sell are you starting to get the sense things are heating up or, or was the role this Chapman and to a lesser extent that Chris Flex and salary dump are those kind of isolated things or are we going to see some action here maybe a little earlier than the actual trade deadline because the standings are so tight
1: Right, uh, it's a, it's a great question. I I do think that to your point, those are rather isolated moves uh, in terms of Chapman Chapman getting traded. There are there are in general there are fewer commodities in the trade market who are clearer in terms of their price than the pending free agent reliever, as Chapman was. So that's a relatively easy player. To figure out what a reasonable transaction would be, and there's a lot of a lot of communication between those two front offices uh, with Texas and Kansas City. They share a spring training site. Uh, Dayton Moore is now a member of the Texas front office. Of course, he was a longtime GM in in Kansas City. So I, th- I think there's that was a comfortable trade to make, and and a bit of an outlier in my opinion. Uh, to where, to your point. Some of the more intriguing potential sellers are those who arrive to this season with expectations of contending. You alluded to the, the flex deal Seattle, probably not quite ready to, to signal that they're really out of it. I don't think trading flex was, was an admission of, of any sort of conceding on the part of the Seattle Mariners. But but they, of course, are, are five games back now of a playoff spot. I think they are among the more intriguing sellers. I think the Cleveland Guardians, who at the moment are right there and, and close to a, a, a postseason berth in the American League Central, they have some pitching to move, but how soon could they move it, whether it's Bieber or Savali or Cal Quantrill, I think all of those names – uh, are logical to be moved. And honestly, if, if I'm the Jays, I would be looking very closely at that Cleveland's pitching because the Jays have solid one, two, three, you would say, but need some supporting arms when you look at the recent form of Kikuchi, Manoa. I know there was a, it was a somewhat encouraging. Rehab, or rehab, or minor league start that he made rather in the last couple of days there with New Hampshire. So I think that that to me might be where the Jays look to to augment their their back end starting pitching. But in the National League, some of the more disappointing teams are arriving with big payrolls. The Padres. When or at any point are they willing to listen on Blake Snell or Josh Hader? The New York Mets. What does their trade deadline posture look like? They are eight games under 500. Uh, the, the St. Louis Cardinals, what will they do at the deadline in terms of potentially moving a, a Paul Goldschmidt or, or some of their pitching? So there's, just, there's a lot of questions right now about those larger market, really disappointing sellers to where, Blake, in my estimation, we're not going to see the Cardinals, Padres, Mets, really start moving their inventory until we get a lot closer to August the 1st.
0: That makes sense to me. Uh, You know, your things look bad for those teams. And and I I don't know if the Cardinals can even dig out of that hole, but if you're the Padres or the Mets with those payrolls, if you go on a five game winning streak and things start to look a little different. uh, Yeah. You have a lot of money invested and a lot of millions of reasons to, uh, to kind of keep pushing forward and try to sneak in, hope to get hot in time for October. Uh, John, I want to circle back to a name you mentioned, Alec Manoa. So the the Blue Jays are operating with four starters right now. Um, that has been something they've survived. You mentioned they have the best, uh, the second best record in the American League since the start of June, which has not included Alec Manoa for the most part. Um, what is, I, I mean, we know how perplexing it's been here. And even if you can explain some of it, the degree to which this has happened to Alec Manoa is mind boggling. There's almost no precedent for it. Is that the feeling around the league as well? When you talk to to other teams and people from other markets, like is the Manoa story, a fascinating league wide discussion as well.
1: It is because at this time last year, he was the talk of the all-star game. We were at Dodger stadium and he struck out the side and, and a national international star was born in a lot of ways. Uh, that That part in the fall, certainly since the end of last season, has been quite surprising and quite precipitous in terms of his his decline and yet the issues that he has experienced, I believe are fixable, whether it 's mechanical, whether it's the mental approach, whether it 's uh, rebuilding his confidence um, there, there's a lot of a lot of things that that I think he has gone through but they are fixable. I think that and, and looking at Shy the beaties reporting from uh, from Alec's appearance with New Hampshire, I, I was really encouraged that that the comments that you were hearing from Alec about the adjustments that he's made, the the efforts that he's made right now, it still sounds like Alec Manoa. Sounds like the player that we have come to know in recent years about what he's working through. And, and he does not sound or look, based on his performance in this recent uh, outing, he does not sound or look like a defeated pitcher. He sounds and looks like someone who's working through it and has retained his his confidence, and that's really important. Uh, and so I, I think that we will see him at some point in the second app. Is it right after the All Star game? Probably his next outing will will determine a bit of that. Having the off day yesterday for the Jays was important because, as you point out, it allows them to have uh, this four-man rotation. They've got six games left in the first half. And and then, of course, the extended All-Star break, which allows you to refocus and reassess where they're at. And and I think even when you look at, effectively, the the first series back after the All-Star game, they've got that three-game home series against a very good Arizona team and then three games against San Diego with an off day on the 17th. So they really, they're really they able to manipulate their rotation a little bit to where they've only got, what, nine games to be played in the next two weeks, which allows you to really move around your rotation and be somewhat creative about it. I, I do think that, that in a perfect world that he would return to them at some point in that streak of of nine games in nine days against the Padres, Mariners, and Dodgers. Uh, and, I, and wouldn't it be amazing if his, if his re-debut to the Jays rotation happens in the same ballpark, Dodger Stadium, where he had his, his big moment in the All-Star game a year ago? I think that is entirely possible. Um, because when you look at this team and, and, and Kikuchi's inability to get deep into games, they need someone that can give you innings. And with with Tiedemann still having been injured for most of the first half, I'm not really seeing that player coming from within. And so uh, outside of Manoa, that, that is. So if, if he continues to progress, Blake, I, I see a path for him to be a part of the Jays rotation again at some point in the month of July. Because let's remember, when they sent him down, it wasn't with the idea that, well, we're sending you down to the minor leagues, and we'll see you in 2024. I mean, this is this is a pitcher who can still help them this season if he goes through the right checkpoints. And and I really think this last outing at double A was a step forward. And if he keeps progressing, he's not maybe ready right now, but he's close to ready. And I think that that we could see him come up still before the end of July, and that would mar- that would mark for me a very significant moment in his development and in the Jays overall 2023 season.
0: So uh, a possible return at Dodger stadium, where he was an all-star last year, potential return at Seattle, where the all-star game is this year. Uh, John, that all-star weekend coming up soon. The home run derby field includes Vladimir Guerrero jr. He'll be up against Adley Rutschman, Pete Alonso, Randy Rosarena, Mookie Betts, and Julio Rodriguez. Uh, who do you like? Do you like Vlad doing it first of all? Given the season that he's had so far, and the bit of a power outage, and then who do you like from that group? We could could be headed for a, a Vlad Alonso rematch here.
1: We could. I, I I like. I'll tell you this. I, I like Randy Rosarena in this in this competition. He's he's just a man made for the big stage. We've seen it in the playoffs. We've seen it in the in the World Baseball Classic. There are performers who are at their best. When the lights are brightest, uh, my pick right now, Randy Rosarena. But we know that Vlad has demonstrated an ability to perform at this event, just as Pete Alonso has. So I like uh, I like the field. I think MLB's done a great job of building out some really intriguing uh, candidates and performers for this. But I'm going to go with the great Randy Rosarena.
0: All right. Last one for you, John, before I let you go and get on with your uh, your continue your long weekend. Uh, I know you tweeted about this yesterday, but for you to be able to see and for baseball to be able to see something like Adelis Garcia and Luis Robert Jr. uh, to go from Cuban teammates to Dominican Republic teammates to now all star teammates um, that just kind of drive home for you. How special the international side of this sport is and how special a weekend like all star can be.
1: Yes, and and I'm I'm glad you asked about that. A a friend of mine shared that photo with me, uh, both Adolis Garcia and Luis Robert Jr. from the city of Ciego de Ávila in Cuba. And so they were teammates in uh, Cuba's Serie Nacional, their national series, so the top level of baseball in Cuba. They were teammates there seven years ago, and then both left Cuba around that same time shortly thereafter and they reunited in the Dominican where they were training for clubs and, and then began their long journey to where they are right now as first-time All-Stars and teammates on the AL All-Star team. And so to your point, Blake, I'm, I'm glad you asked about it because it is it is a journey. And, and just the mere chance to have a path to Major League Baseball is something that maybe for those of us in, in North America – Uh, In the U.S. and Canada, we might take it for granted a bit because if you're a great player at the amateur levels, you're drafted, and then you begin your journey. Uh, Whether you're from Mississauga or or Oakville or or anywhere in the U.S., there's a path for you to be drafted. And I I think it's really important to consider the the path that's a lot harder for those that that leave Cuba to seek freedom. And and here we are speaking on the 4th of July – and and here they now have for Luis Robert Jr. and Adeliz Garcia the chance to pursue their dreams in, in Major League Baseball. So I I really think this is a day to reflect uh, certainly and, and look at the the rosters of of the All Star teams in both leagues and and how international they are and and the top star in the game right now is from Japan. There's just it, it really is when you sit and think about. How the face of baseball has changed over time and and through the years, and whether it's Jackie Robinson or Roberto Clemente, uh, how they have created opportunities for players uh, from diverse backgrounds. So I love it. It's a great way to celebrate the game, and and that that photo of the two of them, uh, of, of Garcia and Robert, and and all that they had to do to earn their path to being all star players. The sacrifices they made, the time they spent away from their families, leaving their home, their homelands, it is something that I think for us to think about. It and we talk about the NHL draft, the MLB draft, um, and, and what it takes uh, to, to have that journey. And and for for a Cuban player, when you leave, you can't go back. You know, if you're a if you're a Swedish hockey player, a Finnish hockey player you can go back home you could visit your family in the off season and then come back and and pursue your dreams in north america for for the cuban baseball player that's not an option and and so i think my my respect has always been with those who who risk it all to pursue their dreams and and to where when you look at that field uh a week from today uh in the all-star game it really will hit home the journeys they've made so my congratulations Feliz to to the Garcia and the Robert families because it is a, a tremendous leap of faith that has resulted in in one of the greatest achievements that, that a Major League Baseball player can have.
0: Yeah, and there are there are eight players in this All Star Game with, with Cuban roots specifically, and then yeah, of course you mentioned Shohei. We're coming off of arguably the, the best World Baseball Classic we've had, and certainly the most successful World Baseball Classic we've had. A great time for the international side of the game. John Morosi, thanks so much for taking the time out. Enjoy the rest of your uh, your up north weekend
1: thank you blake i appreciate it i look forward to, to staying in touch and, and i'll be eager to see the jays in person there on on sunday here in detroit so uh, excited about that
0: look forward to hearing your takes from that and sorry we didn't get any nhl draft and free agency questions in for you john That's
1: okay we've got we've got a lot we've got a lot of time between now and uh, puck drop in october to get those those notes in blake so anytime <laughs> my friend i'll uh, look forward to our next conversation
0: thanks john john morosi mlb network NHL Network headed back to I hope uh, the lake right now. Um, baseball starting up in like half an hour here. A full day of it. Jay's not in action until eight ten tonight. They'll take on the White Sox, the first of three. It's Chris Bassett mm-hmm. against Lucas Giolito. We're gonna take a break when we go back. James Feegan joins us to help tee up the White Sox side of this as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet three sixty
2: breaking down the top stories in the NHL every day. The Jeff Merrick show. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy, Jay's in Chicago. On the south side for three Bassett against Giolito tonight at eight o'clock, seven o'clock in Chicago, eight o'clock here to help us tee up the Chicago side of things and to break down whether a longtime mediocre quarterback can throw out a good first pitch. It's James Feagan, sometimes of Chicago, sometimes formerly a baseball prospectus, I think substack coming soon. James, how are you, man?
3: Uh, no word on that yet, but, uh, uh, yes, I'm fine. How how are you doing? I'm doing well, man. Uh,
0: so how was Jay Cutler as a, as a thrown out the first pitch guy?
3: Um, I'm impressed that he sat through, I guess a four to five hour rain delay to even do it. Um, you know, the Jay Cutler, I think I knew as a Chicagoan, I would have assumed he just bounced, but instead I guess he just did that with the pitch instead. (laughs)
0: I guess uh, all that tells me is that there is probably uh, an area where you're allowed to, to hack a dart while you're waiting during a rain delay that probably not available to, uh, to fans and media, but available to him. Um, So James, you, you've been doing uh, a little bit of Cubs stuff in addition, you know, in, in transition off your, off your white Sox stuff Um, a little bit. I want to do a little bit on the, on the Cubs before we do the white Sox side. Um, Marcus Stroman, is an all-star. Justin Steele and Dansby Swanson will join him. Um, getting to see the excitement from Stroman for a teammate like Justin Steele this weekend. Um, how cool was that? And what's your read on? You know, what, what is your take? I, I know you've mostly been on the White Sox, but Stroman's had a little bit of time in Chicago. Now seems to uh, have really fit there.
3: Yeah, I mean, yeah, he was. I watched him kind of. He, his start wound up being, you know. Nine o'clock at night on Saturday, but you know, someone I mean, you guys have seen Stroman, it's a it's a big personality, it's someone who, uh, you know, certainly feeds off the you know, attention of the crowd. And you know, the field is packed every night, you know, he was very responsive and revving up the crowd. It, it seemed like an atmosphere that was, that was built for him that, you know, he certainly enjoys uh, being at the center of. And it's a team without other big personalities, without big, uh, you know, they have Swanson now, they just signed this offseason, but. After you know, kind of trading away the core of their World Series team, they don't have this a ton of like um, you know established stars or established big personalities, and, and Strum kind of really gets to be the center and focal point of things. And now, as you kind of point out, he's a little bit in his you know he's 32. He's not. He, he says his prime uh, has many more years left to it, but he's in a different stage of his career where he can be kind of the guy who's you know hyping up the younger players on the team, and, and steals kind of the example of that of someone he's been campaigning for to make the all-star team for a while. And, and someone he said that he was happier for, um, than even his own, you know, return trip. He was also wearing his 2019 all-star game, uh, hat <laughs> while he said this. So I think he's pretty really funny, happy about, uh, getting honored again himself. But you know, that was, that was at least the message that he was putting forth.
0: Yeah. I noticed that as well. And that's a key like, Hey, don't forget. I've been this guy, uh, kind of thing from Marcus Stroman, which is fun too. It's part of what makes, uh, Stroman Stroman. So, you know, sounds like he's carved out a nice role as a, as a leader on that team and the personality fits the market a little bit, but this could be the last little bit of Marcus Stroman in Chicago for right now. He can opt out of his deal uh, after this season. Do you get the sense? And, and the Cubs are not particularly competitive right now. The Cubs and the white Sox um, both kind of struggling in their respective central divisions. Um, I, I know you haven't been on the, the Cubs beat for the entire season, but do you get a sense that, you know stroman just just from knowledge around the league stroman could be one of the larger deadline dominoes we see in the next month
3: he certainly could be i mean you watch the cubs like their run differential i want to say it's probably still top six in the nl um you know uh, watching them this weekend it's like this is clearly probably the better team on the diamond with them and the guardians they still managed to lose two out of three and You know, they have a you know, up and down the line. If they have a lot of guys that get on base, they have a lot of good at bats. You know, their rotation, I think is, I want to say they're second in ERA plus in the entire National League. They should be better than they are. At the same time, they've lost seven of eight uh, in a crucial stretch where they're supposed to be defining where they're going to go in the deadline. Um, So they're really kind of, As much as I think they could go on a run at any moment, they're kind of tanking where they're at uh, for a team that's already probably looking more as next year and the year after that as their contention window, that, yeah, they could certainly be in a position where they're, you know, five games under or more by the deadline. And I think, what are we doing? Why would we not trade basically the best starter on the market and get what we got, especially seeing as it doesn't seem like they're, um, you know, going to extend him in season. That, That seemed like it really petered out in spring. I think they'd love to have him back. I think he'd work for what they're doing you know, next season, and, and because of that, it's always difficult to trade a guy that you think could be part of the long-term picture, even if he's not contractually committed uh, past this year. But, yeah, I, I think it'd be really hard to say let's not add, you know, basically some top prospects to the system because, you know, that Stroman's leading all, uh, you know, starters and, and wins over above replacement. He'd be the top starter on the market if they sold him, even as a rental.
0: Yeah, and it would be – I mean, it's always fun to see Stroman in higher-leverage baseball. We got to experience it here uh, in Toronto, and the Cubs surely thought – uh, that'd be the case there. So he'll be an interesting name to watch. Um, James, I want to I want to swing it back to uh, the White Sox here. We're going to do the, the reverse Nick Madrigal, and we're going to go Cubs to White Sox here. Uh, I got to ask, before I ask you serious questions, you wrote recently about Kenyon Middleton, a middle reliever for the White Sox, and his cologne. Now, I have to ask about this, because if you go back in the depths of Blue Jays history, I think it was 2005, there was a kind of unheralded pitcher who came up named Gustavo Chassin and he had a nice little season. He went, okay. 13, he went 13 and nine. And for, I, I forget the exact trickle down of how it became, how it became a thing. But someone said at one point, his name sounds like a cologne and it went all the way to the Blue Jays eventually gave away a Gustavo Chassin cologne at a game. Uh, are we headed that way with Kenyon Middleton? Is is this a big enough thing to run back the Gustavo Chassin cologne giveaway?
3: Um, I don't think that the uh, 2023 White Sox are quite uh, creating the sort of sensation uh, with their fans <laughs> to, to lay, live this kind of promotion. Um, I just got to notice like Liam Hendricks has like this slide out tray at his locker and it's always full of like Legos and Keenan Middleton has it. And it's full of like a variety of colognes. So I just had to like ask him one day about it. And we got into it for a while and it was fun, but you know, realistically where this team is going, I think, Keenan Middleton's a pending free agent. He's a reliever who's pitching really well. Um, those are always very attractive targets of the deadline. I think probably a contending team is going to get more wrapped up about the, you know, Keenan Middleton pitching good and smelling good uh, by the second half than, than the White Sox are probably going to.
0: Yeah, I, I would imagine he is uh, elsewhere, which will complete. Uh, I mean, he's he's checked off like half the teams in the league already uh, over the last four years. So uh, yes, and sorry, Keenan, not Kenyon uh, as I uh, misread uh, the letters on that name, obviously. Um, okay, so in terms of the position the White Sox are in, you, you kind of set it up there that they're not really uh, going anywhere this year. They're 37 and 49. They're fourth in the AL Central. Um, technically, I guess they're only six games back because the Central is so bad. Um, is there any thought that this team won't sell? Like, like are they are they a hot run away from maybe thinking about the division, or, or is the writing too far on the wall with this group right now?
3: Um, like the front office is geared towards not selling. This is supposed to be a contention year. Okay. This is supposed to be a year where they compete. So I think if they went on a hot run, or if they're really in the uh, position to, um, you know, win the division, they're going to give them as much rope as they can. They're going to put it all the way to the end of July to try to make the decision at the same time, this team is, you know, if not the worst, one of the worst teams in getting on base. Um, They now have two starters on the IL. Um, Basically their sixth starter who they're keeping in AAA is going to be their great depth. Davis Martin, he underwent Tommy John um, earlier this season. Their starting depth is hitting the rocks. Their offense is not consistent enough to let them go on a run. They just lost two out of three in Oakland, the worst team in baseball. This is not a team that's shown itself to be capable of going on a run at any point. So I think they're going to force the front off of hand at the end of July to do a limited sell off where guys like you know, guys who are just on expiring deals, like Lucas Giolito or um, you know, Middleton or Joe Kelly, um, I think kind of the obvious sell candidates are guys they have to consider moving because this team just doesn't got it in terms of, you know, their ability to really, you know, put themselves I don't know, like they, they haven't been within you know five games of 500 really since April. I, I I think kind of the writing's on the wall. I don't think they're going full towards Dylan Cease and Luis Robert and all the long-term pieces that people would really be interested in. But I think they have to kind of acknowledge what's going on this season and the guys who are on inspiring deals there, there or the relievers who are not long-term fixtures are, are, are people they're going to listen to. I wouldn't anticipate anybody like Liam Hendricks, uh, who's kind of, you know, would be a, a, a very disappointing coda to like the most heartwarming story in baseball to trade him at the deadline. I don't anticipate something like that, but I think they kind of have to acknowledge what they have here with this team, which is a group that's just not really working right now.
0: It certainly isn't, and expectations were were much higher than this. I will say though, a, a slight bit of positive. They're all the way up to twenty ninth in on base percentage now. They are point zero zero one OBP points higher than the Kansas City Royals. So maybe uh, maybe moving in the right direction there. Uh, so one of the pieces that that hasn't really worked this year. Now he's you know he's around for longer. He has a, a club option on his deal for next year uh, for fourteen million dollars. It would be. Odd to, to, for the White Sox to not pick that up, I think, given how good he's been and how much he's meant to that team. But what has not been clicking for Tim Anderson this year? It, it really does, you know, you can dig into the numbers and you can pull at different threads. And it's really, it really does just seem like an across the board. This isn't the same guy that we've seen for the last four years. Um, what has ailed Tim Anderson this season?
3: Uh, I mean, he, he's spoken to a number of things. He, he's gotten into his, uh, you know, kind of off the field distractions uh, publicly recent. I really think those probably bothered him second half last year more than it's bothering him now. I think the fact that he's talking about it is more that he's a bit behind it. But he hasn't really been the same since, uh, you know, he had a collision and a rundown where uh big twins outfielder, Matt Wallner, kind of dived over his knee because he was, you know, in his way uh, going to third base. And, you know, he missed three weeks from that, but we haven't seen anybody from any anything resembling the Tim Anderson of old since he came back from that knee sprain. You know, it, it, part of it was he was playing with a brace for a little bit, and since then, you know, they talk about about kind of his stride and his swing being affected. There was you know a long stretch where he didn't seem like he could really turn it on running-wise uh, with it. You know, if you ask him about it, he'll acknowledge it's there. He doesn't want to get into it. He doesn't want it to be excused, and he – he certainly doesn't want to be a guy who goes back on the IL and misses more time. He already feels like he's getting labeled injury-prone and doesn't want to buy into that. But, you know, he hasn't been or hasn't looked physically right um, since that. Now that we're a couple of months out, and certainly watching his at-bats in Oakland, I think he had a, a, a at-bat you know, first game of that series where he just kind of stared at three fastballs down the middle. It's gotten to a point where there's a little bit of mental and approach just being out of it timing-wise, uh, where, you know, the slump is kind of – self-fulfilling uh to a degree but um i I think it really started with the knee not being right and throwing him off his rhythm that was a big thing when he came back last season from a groin strain is that his leg base was just not right for a swing and he was kind of he went to drive line of the off season to try to reestablish what he was doing and now you know he had he looked pretty good in the first couple series and then that happened and he hasn't looked like in rhythm since. so now we're building on you know almost a calendar year of him not really looking right not really able to drive the ball the way he had in the past, you know, he's a 20 home run guy in the past and now he's a year removed from those last home runs. So, um, I don't. I don't know. Like, there's more factors than just physical to it, but I think that's the origin point.
0: Yeah, that, and that's uh, that's all. I mean, it's a reasonable origin point, and then the injury element, and yeah, it's a. Uh, I mean, we're, we've seen it in Toronto with a, a couple of guys this year that sometimes you need that kind of step back for a full reset. Um, on the hit, stay on the hitting side before uh, I, I have a, a Giolito thing just to tee up tonight's game. But um, Luis Robert Jr. is you know the big bright spot. For this White Sox team, of course, a breakout 2021, um, you know, not, I mean, he was really, he was solid in the pandemic shortened season too, but uh, a breakout 2021, a bit of a step backward last year around injuries and things like that. He'll now be the White Sox representative in the all-star game. Um, is this, you know, he, he's still not even 26. There, there's, there could be even more here. Is this the version of Robert this club expects long-term that, you know, a 147 WRC plus and more? moving forward from Robert?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I, I certainly don't think you can ask for more for what he's doing. (laughs) Obviously, he's hit for more average and gotten on base a bit more. You know, he's never been a guy that takes walks, but he's been at 300 here in the past where that could boost his, you know, on base a little bit beyond what he's doing. But I think, you know, it was kind of casually stated, like, hey, he's got enough raw power that he could be a 30-plus home run guy. Um, So the fact that he's now on, like, a 40-plus pace if anything is a little bit beyond what I would have expected for him to do consistently. Cause he just wasn't ever a big, you know, swing for the fences or fly ball guy. He was a, he was a guy who kind of, you know, hit for average and the power came when it came, but he, you know, he's,
4: he's, he's
3: still super aggressive. He's still, you know, swing first swing second type of mode, but uh, he's pared down his aggression just a bit where he's getting a bit more pitches to drive. And we're seeing, just the, the raw strength that he has, uh, really breaking out. You know, but you know he was a Gold Glover as a rookie, and he, he's playing at that level again. I think probably Kier Meyer is really the only center fielder who, um, is, is, you know probably is rated out better with him in uh, defensive metrics wise. This this is the guy who the last couple of years, even with Tim Anderson being a star, even with Jose Brady winning MVP. I think this has been the most talented player in the organization since he signed uh, in 2017. And, and, and now the biggest number that, you know, Luis Robert will tell you is that he's um, played all the three games this season. And he's, he's finally been healthy consistently um, really for one of the first seasons of his career. He dealt with injuries in the minors as well. So the fact that he's been just clear away from, uh, you know, all the things that held him back, all the weird stuff he had last season with the sprained wrist, uh, blurred vision and, and COVID, Um, we're just seeing what he can do. And yeah, I've I've always thought he had, you know, top five MVP potential, you know, everything came together for him.
0: Is this, I I know that your background, you know, you you were at Baseball Prospectus, you were a prospect writer there at some point. Is this still kind of one of the, one of your favorite parts of of covering a team year over year? Just, you know, seeing a guy who comes up to the majors at a pretty young age and how things change for him and where the growth is over a multi-year window. Is is that kind of... You know, like I said, is that one of your favorite things about the about the gigs still? Uh,
3: yeah, I like interviewing – I like talking to people about stuff that works and why <laughs> it works and uh, what goes behind it. Uh, and, and Instead, the last few years of uh, the White Sox uh, coverage has been about things that are not working and why, <laughs> why it's not working. So, uh, yeah, moments like Luis Robert are a welcome respite.
0: Uh, things that are working, Lucas Giolito has – Shaking off a rough 2022 he'll get the start tonight against the blue jays uh, that era back to 353 pretty much where it's at 2019 through 2021 um you mentioned him as a potential you know trade deadline chip given that he is a free agent after the season uh what is back to working for giolito with that slider fastball combo uh,
3: you know i think the you know his velocity is a little bit up from last year um Last year, he kind of, you know, during the lockout, he uh, you know, was on his own training plan, and he decided he was going to bulk up, and he thought that would help him hold velocity, and he wound up getting hurt really early in the season, and then everything kind of, you know, fell out of rhythm for him, and being bigger was harder for him to get his mechanics back. So he's kind of back to a lower weight. and He's a bit more lighter and athletic, and, you know, when he has corrections, That he needs to make physically or mechanically, like he had in spring training, something pretty significant. You know, he's kind of able to make that adjustment a little bit quicker and 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 get back to strike throwing. I think Lucas would be the first person to tell you he doesn't have the same caliber of stuff he had from 2019 to 2021, Um, but he's just a bit more consistent now. He's he's a bit more able to adjust to what's working in start. He's kind of a you know even though he's still twenty eight he's kind of in his like older and smarter uh mode at this point, so he's he's not necessarily someone who's going to um come in and overpower anybody um I don't think he's you know the guy who um you know maybe through had no hit stuff uh back in his prime back in twenty twenty uh, but he, he's someone who knows how to navigate, you know, three trips to the order. Who's going to threat? Who's going to get stronger as the game goes on and get more consistent? Because he's kind of a you know big long lever dude. So as he gets synced up, it kind of keeps uh, going on itself. So well, if you don't get him early, uh, he's someone who can threaten to go six seven innings on you because he, he uh, you know makes good adjustments and he, he can he can really execute his mechanics. Uh, more consistently than he did early in his career.
0: So the lesson from his 2022, don't go to the gym. Just don't work out. It's bad for you. It'll mess up your mechanics. Uh, Lucas Giolito dropped the gym routine. And he's back to, to being pretty good. James, thanks so much for taking the time out, man. I uh, I really appreciate it. Um, uh, and seriously, uh, one of my absolute favorite baseball writers. Uh, looking forward to what's next for you, buddy.
3: Appreciate it. Thank you.
0: James Fegan of a lot of places right now, at Jr. Feagan. On Twitter you can keep up with his work uh, there so White Sox Jays tonight we mentioned Lucas Giolito it'll be Chris Bassett on the hill for the Jays scheduling note the Jays have released their probables for the series and it tells us a little bit about how they're going to handle this six day stretch uh, there was some thought they could do a bullpen day during this White Sox series and line up the rotation on the weekend, and that would buy one extra guy, an extra day of rest. They're not going to do that. They're going to roll Bassett, Burrios, Kikuchi for this series, which then means they'll either go Gosman, Bullpen Day, Bassett, or Bullpen Day, Gosman, Bassett over the weekend. My guess is they do the Bullpen Day Friday just to buy Gosman that extra day. But we'll see. Uh, Tigers on the weekend, as John Morosi let us know, and uh, he'll be down there for it. Uh, We'll see Lucas Giolito tonight. We'll see Lance Lynn. Tomorrow, who has had just a bizarre season so far. So he has a 647 ERA. It's monstrous. It, it's He has not been very good overall. He has not had many great outings. Even his good outings have often allowed three earned runs or more. But he's also coming off of not that long ago, he had a 16 strikeout game. He's had a couple 10 strikeout games. He's had some games that are on those stack cast leaderboards for most swing and miss or most swing and miss with this pitch, et cetera. Um, And he's striking out more batters than he did last year overall. It's just... The results from an earned run perspective, aren't there? It's, it's a pretty odd season for someone at 36 to be having. Hey, I have more strikeout stuff now. Um, I have more swing and miss stuff than I've ever had at any point in my career. And I can put up 16 strikeouts on a given day, but the overall results aren't there. And I can't, you know, manage to, to get guys out. Otherwise this coming off of four consecutive seasons with an ER or at least partial seasons with an ERA under four uh, interesting season for him wouldn't be at all surprising given how things have gone for the Jays for him to have just an absolute gem uh tomorrow we'll see uh we're gonna take a break when we come back we'll dive deep on the Blue Jays side of things with Chris Black we'll talk to Clinton Yates a little later in the second hour as well as Jays Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360
2: everything raptors before and after the games the raptor show with will lou subscribe and download the show on apple spotify or wherever you get your podcasts
0: welcome back to jay's talk plus i'm blake murphy chris black requested his song choice too late i had already sent them into lance kennedy Sorry, Chris. Uh, He joins us now, though. He's a producer at Sportsnet, Twitter threads at down to black. Chris, how's it going, buddy?
2: Uh, I'm doing very well. How are you, Blake?
0: I am. I was going to say I'm good, but, you know, this show is always uh, less fun to do after a getting swept weekend. So I guess my first question to you is, uh, what the hell, man?
2: (laughs) I always say when people who don't work in our industry ask about it, one of the first things I say is, I'm not a fan in the sense of I want them to win because I'm a hardcore fan I it's as you mentioned it's just more fun to talk about things that are working to talk about things that are going well it just has some type of effect on your psyche when you're talking about positive things as opposed to negative things so that's and you know that that's kind of how I skew anyways but yeah I would say Yeah, it's just a little bit more fun if they were, you know, if they have one eight of nine or something like that.
0: I'd also say that I enjoy trying to pick apart things that are going poorly and trying to figure out what to fix about them. But the Jays this year, most of it has existed in like the ethereal of like, well, there's this, you know, magic pixie dust on them when, when they hit with runners in scoring position, or they just can't beat the red Sox, who are not very good. Uh, There's weird stuff like that. The other thing is like, obviously you've got to lose and you've got to have bad parts. I, I will always argue that the best thing for like the content cycle is to have like a bit of a dip, shortly before the trade deadline, because then everyone gets really trade hungry, um, which is great for us. Uh, However, this has been... This past weekend was particularly uh, egregious. So how much... I mean, do you put anything – you have to put something into it given the quality of the division. But the fact that they're 7-20 against the American League East right now and 0-7 and against the Red Sox, I know you and I would generally be like, okay, well, that's you know, that's noise. You play that 100 times. It's going to balance out. Do you strongly feel that way? Or is there – because they cost themselves a couple of these games, and it feels to me like a series where given they picked up – they've been on a bit of a roll, and given what happened last time against the Red Sox, you would have thought that this was – a series where there was some level of urgency.
2: And if we've heard anything from people who know better than you and I over the last little while, even over the last few years, trying more, caring more, wanting to do more in baseball doesn't usually work. And that's the only, as you said, like this kind of weird space, especially when you're on the analytic side, as you and I probably fall onto, um, When you can't measure this stuff and when you start thinking about other factors, the division stuff kind of plays into that. Like, do they try and tell themselves, hey, this game means a little bit more? And we've seen a little bit of stuff with Vladdy in terms of does he chase more at home? We've seen some other things. Do they try to do a little too much on the bases when they're at home? Um, I wonder with this team, if they just, if they know the expectations that surround them almost better than we do. And if they're just, if they're, again, squeezing the bats a little bit more. Now, that doesn't lend itself to good analysis, but it is just something as as this season goes on a little bit more and more that you start to wonder about.
0: You certainly do. And, you know, whether it's uh, a mental component, whether it's execution component, whether it's uh, this team just doesn't have the juice component, it's, uh, I don't know, it it feels like something hasn't quite clicked for this team. I I mentioned off the top, they did have a six-game win streak in late April but for the most part this team hasn't had a sustained stretch of very good baseball heading into this Red Sox series they had the best record in the American League in June that's one thing but it's a lot of also everyone had come down to earth and everyone was within a couple games of 500 for the month of June Um, does does that play a factor in your mind as well when you project this team a little bit forward that they haven't been able to string together say two three weeks of really good baseball
2: I honestly think that has a lot to do with the league itself, as you mentioned, like it's a li- it's a little bit about everyone being a little bit average, but I think it also what you're realizing as you see the entire league progress over the last few months is there are a handful of really, really bad teams. And then just a whole bunch of pretty good teams. Uh, I really haven't seen a ton of great, obviously Tampa was amazing to start the year but I, I do feel like they're coming back to the pack I I don't see a dominant dominant team right now and I just I think every team has flaws and I, the other thing that I the other place where I always land when we talk about the Blue Jays in particular and I, I don't think I'm the first one to say this either but you know when we examine this team with a microscope we aren't examining the other teams with a microscope and I, I do think they all have flaws I do think postseason will be wide open this year but I just you know that that underlines the importance of locking in a spot and getting there
0: yeah and honestly uh, to some degree I think there's an element of well had you done your business earlier maybe one or two of these extra teams that are in this meaty middle would have been like ah you know what we should sell off we're further away we lost a couple extra games uh you can't really control That at this point, though, I will say the one team that looks kind of flawless right now is the Atlanta Braves. And they'll probably be one of the absolute most aggressive teams adding at the deadline because that's how they roll. Um, Okay, so let's get into uh, some of the specifics. I, I, I know there were a couple things you wanted to talk about coming off of that weekend. And, you know, at a higher level thing, we can once again look at. The hard hit ball stuff and results versus expectation. You you sent me a thing earlier that uh, the Blue Jays are fourth in the league in hard hit balls. They are 17th in runs per game. If we look at the leaderboards for hard hit balls and runs per game, it is not a perfect one to one correlation, but it correlates extremely strongly except for the Toronto blue Jays. Uh, They're also, and I know sometimes it's a, well, do they hit the, do they hit the ball hard on the ground too much? And that's certainly true at times for Vladimir Guerrero jr. It's certainly been true for Alejandro Kirk, but they're also a top 10 team hitting the barred hall, hitting the ball hard in the air. (laughs) Um, What do you make of that? Like we, we are, again, we're past the point of, well, it's small samples and things like that. It might be small samples in terms of statistical predictability, but it's 85 games into the season that that gap's still persisting to uh, the most extreme degree in all of baseball, the quality of contact versus the actual run production. What do you make of that at this point?
2: I honestly, honestly think for the most part, their process has been good are They don't chase a lot. They don't strike out a lot. They make a lot of contact. They make good contact. The thing that hasn't come are the home runs and the production with runners in scoring position. And it feels, I know when people hear people around the team talking about it's going to come or it feels like it should come. It really does seem like the process works. As you said, like Braves are number one in hard hit balls. They're second in runs per game. Rangers are second in hard hit balls. They're first in runs per game. As that correlation you mentioned is just really, really strong. The other part, that I dove into with this is what else could be playing a factor in terms of not converting hits and runners on base into runs. And one place I landed was base running. And I wrote a thread before the season when we saw some of the changes they made, bringing in Kiermaier, bringing in Varsho, full season of uh, Merrifield, full season of Chapman. I really thought that they would almost be guaranteed top 10 base running team. And that hasn't really been the case. So I wonder if the fact that they've, and it's not just about outs on the bases that we've seen, the kind of plays that can kind of tick you off as a fan. It's just been just overall not taking extra bases. And I wonder if, if that has kind of uh, held them down a little bit in terms of run production as well. That's
0: an interesting one because there's not a, there is not a great explanation for that one, other than maybe that, you know, their catchers obviously are not particularly fleet of foot. Uh, and those catchers absorb the DH spot a lot of the time. So on any given day, you probably have two of Danny Jansen, Alejandro Kirk and Brandon Belt, uh in the lineup and, and on the base pass. But lots of teams deal with that. Lots of every team in baseball has a catcher and not very many of them are, are fast and good on the bases. So um, it, what do you, what do you make of that? Like, what do you attribute that to? Because they do have, you mentioned Chapman, you mentioned a full season of Marafield. You add Kiermaier and Varsho. Um, Bichette's, gen- this weekend aside, has generally been a guy uh, who's pretty smart on the bases. Even a bench piece like Kevin Biggio um, you know, has a reputation as a good base runner, had a couple blips uh, as a pinch runner earlier in the year. Um, I mean, not to do the whole, hey, they said they'd be the little things team and they're not the little things team again, but that it, it kind of feels like that base running stat you cited is good evidence of that.
2: Yeah, and it's the base running thing. It's it's a little bit more measurable than defense, but still less measurable than offense. If that makes sense, like hitting. Mm-hmm. So it's you, you gotta you gotta look at all sorts of numbers to kind of get to kind of paint a picture. Their top ten in stolen bases. Um, that's the first place to start. That probably keeps them up in that average territory in terms of base running overall. But then when you start looking at the outs, uh, bottom ten in stolen base percentage bottom 10 in pickoffs, and only three teams have more outs on the bases on non-force plays. So, you know, trying to stretch a single into a double, getting thrown out, going second to home or first to third. So they've been they've been thrown out quite a bit on plays like that this year. And conversely, which adds to this problem, second fewest bases taken this season. So advancing on fly balls and pass balls, taking the extra base, like not even on a ball that is a wild pitch, but just a ball in the dirt. So they're not really taking those little bases that you don't really notice uh, on a micro level, but add up over time. So it's little things like that. You know, we mentioned the guys who we expected to be good, Varsho, Chapman, Merrifield, they've all still been good. If you look at their individual level, but they've got three guys who are just not good base runners, Kirk, Guerrero, and Belt. And that's speed speed related more than anything. And so that's not really going to change. Um, but the other thing that kind of stands out to me and this isn't a perfect correlation to base running skill Um, I've said before that you don't need to be fast to be a good base runner but the one thing that I was kind of surprised by are how many people on the Jays their sprint speed has decreased by some amount Um, some of this is age-related Kiermeier's down Springer's down but he some of the other guys who you don't expect biggio is a bit slower espinal slower jansen slower kirk is slower guerrero slower bichette is half a foot per second slower as well so you know and i have literally no clue on what to explain by that could just be a measurable thing could just be like a measurement not error but just variance um but that's just something that kind of stood out to me when i looked at the numbers
4: well,
0: and the net result of that is so you look at, hey, they're not hitting with runners and scoring position. Well, they're not taking third on us from first on a single as often they are making more outs on the base pass. You look at all these things in total and only 31% of their base runners have come into score, which is near the very bottom of the league, which when you are struggling to produce offense exactly. is uh, sorry, 30%, not even 31%. So, um, you know, league average there is is closer to 32%. Uh, you know, you have a team like the Texas Rangers and the Tampa Tampa Bay Rays, who are up in the 37, 38%. And I know these seem like small gaps, you know, 31% to 37%. But you do that over an entire season's worth of runners on base. And, you know, we talked about it in the Texas series. Texas has a very similar triple slash line to the Jays, or or at least the average OBP components. And then they've just cashed in so many more runs. So uh, a lot of runs left on the table for this Blue Jays team by way of hitting, by way, of base running. Uh, it's not great. So here's a question would, and, and I know you had thoughts on the batting order from this weekend in general, um, blue Jays central, they were discussing, you know, Brandon belt in the three spot. Do you think that there's something the blue Jays could do lineup construction wise to, to help themselves out a little bit with that base running issue?
2: Um, I think so. I think there's, I mean, I was, I wasn't working on the weekend, but I was watching as a fan and I was, I was really interested listening to Dan and Buck talk about this during One of the games on the weekend, I really enjoyed and agreed with uh, Joe Siddles' take um, that Belt should maybe be out of the top three. And that's not a slight on Brandon Belt whatsoever. Um, You know, I posted something yesterday that essentially he's been their best hitter by OPS over the last, I can't remember, especially a quarter of the season. So I think it's more about, you know, yes, you kind of want to achieve platoon left, right balance when you can. But I also think you also want to split up your slow base runners when you can as well to kind of eliminate some of that station to station. And you want to keep those kind of low contact guys split up. So one thing with, I think it was Dan who brought it up as an idea. I love the idea of having Bo and Vlad one, two. I just think they're your best guys. You're going to, you know, you're going to thrive or not thrive depending on how they produce. And I just love the idea of putting those two guys one, two and getting them as many plate appearances as you can over the last uh, few months of the year. Um, After that, I, I do think Springer should stay top three. You split up in that sense, you split up Guerrero and belt, which I like, and then how you, you know, how you've, put together the bottom five or whatever. Um, again, just splitting up, keeping, you know, Belt away from Chapman, keeping Kirk and Belt, not one to, not one right after the other for speed purposes. So I think you're always, there's always going to be an amount of variability, switching guys up, one or two guys at the bottom. But I really do like that idea that was put forth of Bichette, Guerrero, Springer, one, two, three. And again, I think we talked about this a week or two ago. This might not be something that comes into effect until kind of, heading into start next season, but I, I love it as a thought exercise.
0: Yeah, and, you know, George Springer's, hey, he's, I I don't think George Springer is the type of guy who would have been like, no, I'm not moving from the leadoff spot. I'm chasing that second place of, for the leadoff home run record behind Ricky Henderson. But if it were, hey, he's got it now. So uh, no need to, to stick there. I would be interested to see how that looks. You do get into a complicated middle of the order then because you mentioned you want to sure. keep Belt and Varsho separate for the lefty stuff. You want to keep Belt and Chapman separate for the swing and miss stuff. You want to keep belt and Kirk separate for the plotting base running thing. And then then you're kind of like, okay, well, you're out of options unless you hit Merrifield fifth or something like that. Um, But we've seen them do that as well. Uh, I'd be interested in shaking it up. Kind of, I've said this before on the show for anyone who's curious, you, you can crunch the numbers on this stuff. And over the course of an entire season, your batting order optimization, Doesn't matter a great, great deal other than you want to get your best players, the most played appearances possible on a micro level game to game. We're talking about like fractions of a fraction of a run in terms of your projected output, optimized batting lineup versus non-optimized batting lineup. Uh, So again, what guys are comfortable with maybe just mix it all up and Hey, a little bit of let's get your best players, uh, the most played appearances possible, which uh, as long as they're all hitting in the top four is probably going to be close to the case, but Each successive spot in the lineup, you'd be expected to get, you know, an extra uh, 40 or so plate appearances over the course of the year. Okay, Chris, let's turn the page. Let's look ahead to tonight. Chris Bassett is on the Hill. He'll take on Lucas Giolito and the Chicago White Sox. His last outing was tremendous career high strikeouts uh, no extra base hits handled the lefties a little better um, there are a number of things that stood out to me about that Chris Bassett start what is foremost of mine for you uh, like what are you looking for anyone when he takes the mound against the White Sox tonight
2: I it's interesting because I, I, I certainly don't want to look past the White Sox but I don't think they present as much of a challenge well, they have no lefties yeah, exactly. For Bassett in particular, it's not really as much of an issue for what his issues have been this year, which are getting lefties out. So in terms of that, he's he's been dominant and great against righties for most of the year. Um, but it, it still is that he found success using pitches last start that he hadn't used as much of previously this year. And so it was a lot of you know the success that he had where a lot of his success was sinker and kind of his horizontal breaking pitches. So cutter, sweeper, slider. And he did not throw a lot of those, especially to lefties last time out. There's a lot of four seamers up and then curve balls and kind of his off-speed stuff, splitters and change ups down in the zone. So that was a big, big change for him last start. And again, you know, is it something that we're going to see a lot of tonight against this particular lineup. Maybe not, but I I just think it was a big change for him. And it was a big change in terms of what was a huge struggle getting lefties out. Like lefties were tagging him, uh, especially recently. And he made a drastic change, something that kind of started two starts ago, but he's made a kind of a fundamental shift in how he's pitched to lefties. So that was the biggest thing that stood out to me last start.
0: Do you think that's sustainable? Because, uh, you know, obviously some of those pitches have platoon splits associated with them, not just for Chris Bassett, but league-wide. You know, you, you don't see a lot of uh, righty-righty changeups. You don't see a lot of righty-to-lefty sliders. Uh, the sinker is one that, depending on your specific type of sinker, whether it's a dead sink or an arm-side run type of sinker, um, you know, the, the arm-side run types of sinkers have pretty significant platoon splits as well. So what he's been able to do now, he has eight pitches he can kind of pull from to, to cobble together game plans versus righties and separate game plans versus lefties. Um, that pitch selection and kind of narrowing down what he's throwing to lefties, is that something he can continue to ride? Again, White Sox and Tigers aside because neither of them really have any lefties.
2: Yeah, like I, I do think it's its almost, as you mentioned, with all the pitches he can throw, he is almost two different pitchers um, depending on if he's facing a lefty or righty. And you see this with, you know, it, he's not unique in that sense, but... You know, when he's facing a righty, all those pitches I just mentioned that he kind of shelved facing lefties, that's what he's going to lean on when he's facing righties. He's going to be heavy sinkers. As you said, uh, as you mentioned, his sinker is kind of one that he can work up in the zone. It's not really, it doesn't sink a ton. It's more of a breaking, it's more of a breaking kind of in on a righty. So it's a lot of sinkers, and then it's a lot of those pitches breaking away from a righty. Cutters, sweepers, sliders. So. Yeah, I think it's totally sustainable. I just think it's inter- I think it's a great building block for the last, you know, month or two of the year. I, I think it was great to see him because that that was something that could be and still can. You want to see kind of su- sustained success, but to see the success he had against lefties, just a really encouraging sign heading into the break.
0: And he's been dominant against righties all season. Uh, there have been obviously occasional blips. He's given up a couple home runs to righties, but for the most part, it's been lefties doing the extra base hit damage. Lefties who he walks a little bit more. Um, he also had a ton of strikeouts in that game, and they weren't all to lefties. His move to at least in that start, um, we've generally seen him use righty on righty the sweeper as his kind of put away pitch. He went to the curveball. A little bit more on that outing. Now the curveball is more split neutral, so that's a part of it as well. Do you like Bassett going to the curveball as the two-strike weapon a little bit more or kind of even with the sweeper?
2: Yeah, I just like the variability, to be honest. Uh the curveball, what he had done with it, it's that big, loopy, kind of real slow breaking ball that really it breaks a ton. Like it's something like You know, when you add in gravity, it's something like uh, over 70 or like over six feet of break, where in terms of where it thinks it's going out of his hand and where it eventually lands. So it's that big loopy breaking ball. And yeah, he had three strikeouts with the last start, threw it a whole lot more with two strikes. It was a pitch early on in the year. He was using early in counts, which a a lot of guys do in terms of kind of stealing a strike early in the count, get someone to give up on that pitch uh, on an 00 count. They see it kind of ball out of hand and it's kind of looks like it's going super high. They give up on it. It breaks down in for a strike. That was kind of how he was using it a lot early. As you mentioned, he kind of the two strike usage spiked up and he had success with it. I just like the mix. I, I don't think it needs to be a, you know, a primary two strike pitch for him. I just like, he's got so many options. I love mixing it up. I don't think there's any reason for him to ever be predictable In any count. And I think if we heard, if you kind of listen to what different analysts were saying uh, last start when the catchers had kind of taken over play calling or pitch calling for Bassett, I think that was one thing that they maybe thought that they could add a little bit of variability to certain counts in certain situations. So maybe that's a credit to, uh, to Kirk last start for kind of mixing up what they were doing.
0: So Kirk, uh, of course, the numbers are the numbers. Chris Bassett has 12 appearances pitching to Kirk. The ERA is under two. The ERA is significantly worse with Jansen and with Heinemann. Um, But you are not a big subscriber to that. Now, catcher ERA in general is something we can statistically show that when you have enough of a sample, you know, again, all things equal. Go with what your guys are the most comfortable with. But there's not a ton of evidence that catcher ERA in specific battery matchups sustains for all that long, unless you're, I don't know, R.A. Dick or something like that Um, we could also dig into you know okay well Danny Jansen has a better reputation as a game manager and a game caller not Alejandro Kirk Um, Kirk's a better blocker and a better framer but not necessarily in the starts that Bassett has thrown Uh, you you sent me a stat a little earlier um, off air that Actually, even though Alejandro Kirk has better framing numbers on the season, when Chris Bassett's on the Hill, Danny Jansen's been a little better, uh, stealing him extra strikes. How much stock do you put into, and this can be Kirk Bassett specific, or or it can just be general, you know, the comfort uh, of battery mates. Are you a believer in that stuff? Do you want to see Bassett, you know, tethered to to Kirk as long as it's working here?
2: I mean, generally any anything that's working, just stick with it. Like, I don't know how much I believe in any of it, but I know that athletes are superstitious. And if something's working, don't break it, don't change it. So that's the first thing. Second thing is like, generally, I probably believe in these numbers more than most people. And so, because I do think there can be, i I think the pitcher-catcher relationship is super important, and I do think there are things that can lend themselves to differences. I don't think it's random, and I don't think it always, you know, like I do think the number can mean something at times, whether that's – but I also think you can look into it. You know, is a certain catcher calling more fastballs in certain counts? Is a certain pitcher – or is a certain catcher calling more pitches with two strikes? Or Like there was a – when I dove into the numbers last year – There were some instances of Moreno calling some really poor pitches uh, with certain pitchers that I thought lend themselves to explaining why certain pitchers had higher ERAs with Moreno catching. So there, there are times where I really do believe in it. But with Bassett, he was calling his own pitches for most of the season. And as you alluded to, Jansen actually, I do believe Kirk is a better framer. But with Bassett pitching this season, the numbers, Jansen's actually got a better strike rate on pitches on the, on the edge of the strike zone. So in this case, I don't necessarily believe in it unless you really, really believe in kind of Bassett really liking the target that he sees from Kirk. But, you know, I don't think that can explain seven runs of, of difference in catcher array. But so I guess, you know, long answer is I believe in it sometimes, but not necessarily in this case.
0: Well, you know who else believes in it? Uh, The Chicago White Sox and Lucas Giolito. Sebi Zavala has only played 37, started 37 games this year, 16 of them when Lucas Giolito is on the hill. Yasmani Grandal has caught him for four innings, and that's it. Giolito has a, a personal catcher in Sebby Zavala. Uh, it is working so far. Lucas Giolito having a season back to where he was prior to 2021. ERA coming in around 350 where we expected. Uh, I know you dove into the numbers as you always do for the, you know, the the numbers sheets that you send out uh, ahead of Blue Jays broadcasts. What are you seeing in Giolito's return to form, particularly with that slider fastball combo?
2: Yeah, a couple of things. One, fastball, and we've seen this with a few starters in the last week or two, or actually a few weeks, against the Jays, but working the four-seamer up in the zone. Uh, so his average height is like three feet on that fastball, which is really like essentially at the top of the strike zone. So he's working that four-seamer up, and he's throwing the slider a ton. He's throwing, throwing it more than he ever has, particularly early in counts, 0 counts and 0-1 counts. So if you're a Blue Jays hitter, you know, I'd love to see some guys sitting on a first pitch, second pitch slider, and you're hoping, uh, looking for some guys who can handle the fastball up in the zone. Now, what I would say, I would love to see, even though it flies in the face of past, kind of years past performance, I'd love to see Biggio get a start tonight. I think he's handled four seamers pretty well up in the zone of late. Um especially this year, I think he's, you know, I think he could handle that pitch in particular from Giolito. Giolito's not killing the radar gun. I think Bijou could maybe make a difference towards the bottom of the lineup tonight.
0: That could be interesting. The high fastball is uh, is always interesting too because, you know, there's velocity and then there's what a scientist would call uh, effective velocity where, you know, how, how difficult is it actually to catch up to that? And, you know, the higher, you, the reason high fastballs are on vogue is you get, Maybe not an extra tick, but the higher in the zone it is, the faster your bat has to be to get to it with, with a clean bat path. It's a, And high and inside is tougher than low and outside. It's the same reason when we talk about, say, Jordan Romano's extension at his height, that's a factor as well. He's releasing it closer to the plate. So even if the velocity is what it is, you have a little less time to get your bat around on it. Um, I bring that up just to ask you. A quick Romano thing, because I know you and I had a fairly positive Romano conversation uh, last week's show or the week prior, and then he immediately got hit hard a couple times. A save that he still managed (laughs) to save, but he got got hit pretty tough in that one save where it was a two-run game, and he gave up one run, and they gave him an out back on the base pass, and then, of course, giving up the game-tied home run. On the weekend, uh, any concern with how things have gone for Romano? Like I know middle middle is just a mistake, but it, it's happened a couple times. Lately. Is there anything to that to you or are you you still uh, high confidence with the Jays closer?
2: I, I think it's what what you said is from time to time. He's going to make mistakes with certain pitches and I'll leave the middle middle. And when you're a when you're a two pitch pitcher from time to time, your middle middle pitches are going to get hit and probably <laughs> more likely. Than if you're a three or four pitch pitcher that your middle middle will get hit. So he's left a few too many uh, over the heart of the uh, strike zone. And that's kind of what happens, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in Romano. I'm, I'm in the Romano camp. And and I certainly think he'll be there closer all the way through. And for the next, for the years to come,
0: a little help in the seventh and eighth wouldn't hurt though, maybe lessen the <laughs> workload and uh, help keep those games tight. No disrespect to Eric Swanson, who is, been an absolute horse for this team, but the back end of that bullpen starting to show a little bit of fatigue here at the midway point. Chris Black, no fatigue for you. You are off at the cottage. I will let you get on with your uh, lovely Tuesday morning. Thanks for taking the time out.
2: Anytime. See you later,
0: Chris Black, producer at Sportsnet at Down to Black on Twitter. We'll in the last few minutes of the show we'll continue setting up uh, this series Jays and White Sox. Uh, although. You also have Blair and Barker 5-7. to seven. I think you have a 7-8 to eight pregame show tonight since it's a, a later start as well. Uh, lots of Jays to come for you throughout the day. We're going to take a break. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk to Clinton Yates of ESPN and Around the Horn. We'll go Around the Horn a little bit around Major League Baseball, some of the, the cool stories right now, some of what he's looking forward to at All-Star Weekend as well. Clinton Yates joins us next on Jays Talk Plus on Sportsnet, on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360.
2: The most opinionated Maple Leaf show out there. Real Kipper and born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your
0: podcasts. Welcome back to Jay Stock Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Uh, the Toronto Raptors just announced their coaching staff for this year. A lot of different uh, additions to that group. We'll get to that. Uh, Maybe just as we finish up the show. Uh, Other Jays news, Hyunjin Ryu has been assigned to the FCL Blue Jays and will start today against Detroit's team. So Hyunjin Ryu, start the 30-day ticker on uh, his rehab assignment before he's potentially back in the mix for the Toronto Blue Jays. That's a fun bit of news uh, as we work through the Alec Manoa side of things as well. Uh, Joining us now of ESPN, of around the around the horn uh clinton yates clinton how are you man
4: i'm good man that was a tremendous intro song by the way i did my re- i did my that research well man done, brother that was well done. That's a great <laughs> song. Rest in peace, the true boy, the dumb. That's all forever. Uh
0: Thanks, man. I appreciate you coming on. I want to kind of whip around baseball here. We're at the midway point. We're heading into all-star break. And uh, look, I, I know we all tweet about him a ton. He's getting the absolute love that he needs to get from people who are, you know, deep in, in baseball. Show What Shohei Otani Has done. Have we just lost the ability to to contextualize this? Like, I'm out of, you could tell me anything about Shohei Otani at this point, and I would believe you. I I think we're just out of ways to describe this guy.
4: Yeah, and I think there's also an element of it that is because it's a sight unseen kind of situation, as in a skill set combo that we just are not familiar with, it's very difficult for people to even recognize it in the moment like okay you can watch a guy hit 30 homers okay you can watch a guy with a nasty off-speed pitch that nobody's ever seen before but your brain can't necessarily put together that it's the same person because that's just not a thing that we do and so i live in southern california i watch him every night and sure the halos are garbage but when you cumulatively think about what it is that the human is doing it's like hold on a second what's going on here, you know? And I think that for a lot of people, the way to really crystallize it is if you go actually see him at the ballpark. I don't know if you've ever been out to the yard and seen him with your own eyeballs, but when you see the person, it's a different feeling. And that's something that makes it unfortunate that he plays... I don't want to say in a market in which he's not very well exposed because it's Los Angeles, it's a huge market, but the team specifically is not one that people typically go to immediately when they think about big time baseball clubs. So you're right. There is an element of inability to contextualize it, but also like, that's normal human nature because this hasn't happened before. Don't talk to me about Babe Ruth. You know what I mean? Like He only hit when he pitched and he didn't even play against black players. Like This is a completely different thing. And I think that there's nothing wrong with people not really understanding what they're looking at because, hello, they've never seen it before.
0: It's, it's ridiculous. And, and, you know, there's the, the having never seen it before at the same time should be the most special thing, but also, you know, people it, not, not can't understand it, but it is hard to contextualize. Um, so with, with respect to Shohei, you know, outside of the baseball world as well. So we're coming off of, you know, I, I know our pal June Lee had noted this at the start of the season. He was the first Asian athlete to, to be on the cover of a video game. And then the WBC happens and it couldn't be a bigger Shohei showcase. And now he's having a better season than he'd had before. And we even thought, prior like what else can Shohei do and and how much of this falls on Major League Baseball to continue making him he should be the biggest star in sports right now probably what does he have to do more or what does Major League Baseball have to do more to help him break through to that level
4: you know I think that there is kind of a presumption between American and well North American audiences that somehow players and people have to appease to them and their sensibilities in order to be considered successful. (laughs) I look at an example, like say, I don't know, Naomi Osaka, who made a bunch of money outside of this country, outside of this continent, for popularity there's a whole globe here i don't really know that major league baseball needs to do anything outside of just let this guy keep doing what he's doing he's immensely popular you know how i know because everywhere he goes there's 25 people following him like in real actual life i don't mean like on social media and i I don't know I i feel that there's this weird sort of undercurrent of people that are like, oh, he's not popular, always oh, not this, always oh, not that. You know what I do? I just watch him play baseball because he's awesome. I don't need to worry about all these other things. And I get it. There's marketing elements and there's people that kind of have that, please watch my sport element about baseball for whatever reason. But I'm not going to sit here and worry about, who the Halos are going to trade him to, what's going to happen in the offseason. Look at my man on the baseball field right now. That's good enough for me because I'm an actual fan of the game, and I know that not everybody comes at it from this standpoint, and they want to see him doing, I don't know, chocolate milk commercials or whatever else it may be. But at the same time, like that's not a requirement anymore. It's just a different era. You can just kind of be good. And that's just fine. He's getting paid millions of dollars to do it. And I'm glad that the guy's living his life. That said, and shout out to June Lee, one of the best baseball writers on the globe, who points out something as well that's really important about him is the language barrier. I'm using air quotes here. Still, he can speak English and chooses not to because it's just not worth his time. Think about that when you think about what is going on regarding who audiences are that should be quoted to and who should not. This guy's focused on his job, and he's doing a great job. Great job at it. And I love it. It's
0: it's terrific. It's a lot of fun. And yeah, the the marketing elements and the MLB getting the most out of it elements are real, but they're absolutely not critical to us enjoying Shohei Otani. And you mentioned the ballpark experience. He's going to be here at the end of the month. Um, and last year was, you know, the hottest ticket of the season short of the wildcard game. So I uh, hope a lot of people get a chance to to check him out here as well. Now, Clinton, having said that, I know you do care about the health of the sport of baseball and its long-term you know, popularity and growth and things like that. And and you had this great thread recently about why something like the College World Series having such good ratings is so important to the continued growth of this game. And this is coming off of a World Baseball Classic that, yes, is MLB run but is not the same as MLB baseball, and and it had record ratings. Why are those things so important to you as we look at kind of the near-term future of
4: baseball? I think the thing that is difficult for a lot of people to understand, particularly if you didn't come up playing baseball in the developmental world, is that Major League Baseball is literally just the top flight. Most people that most folks play baseball with their entire lives are not getting anywhere near the big leagues. And I don't just mean that as players. I mean, that as coaches, administrators, play callers, respectfully radio host of which I have been one. You know what I mean? Like we're not touching that, but the world in which everything else that builds up to that is what you come up around. And as a result, I think that having a more varied baseball diet in general for the sport is really important because it all feeds upwards. If we like the sport as a populace, then everything that comes to contributes to getting better will improve. And I feel that major league baseball made a real big error in acting as if their product was the only product that mattered in the baseball world. And so when I go to a WBC and I see teams like Great Britain or teams like, you know, Japan who play on a totally different level, like those, the the variance in those squads alone is the fun part to me. It's not just, watching some guy like, to get back to the Halos, Mike Trout hit the ball out of the park and run, around the, and run around the back like a robot. And when I go to a place like Omaha and I see a team like Wake Forest in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, which I would guess half of your listeners cannot even place on a map up against LSU, a traditional powerhouse or whatever, that's the kind of stuff that really makes baseball baseball. And separately, and I'll say this, Canada, underrated baseball nation, You know what I mean? Like, these are the kind of things that bring people together. It's not just the results that happen in the proverbial history books and Wikipedia pages. It's the games being played on the field and in the ballparks. And to me, there's just so much more of that everywhere else by a simple numbers standpoint that's obvious that should be a part of why we all do this and not just – so that we can say, oh, look at Rob Manfred. He got it again. Like, come on, man. Baseball is baseball. It's not just the big.
0: Yeah, and and look, I'll say I will go through any hoops to not point to Rob Manfred and give him credit for anything at this point in time. <laughs> but, uh, we'll say this is not a... This is not particularly a Manfred comment. I I will say that the rise in stolen bases has been something. And I bring this up because it's the halfway point and we can check in with some of the stats and stolen base attempts are up about 35 percentage points this year. And stolen base success rate is up about five percentage points. So we're seeing the run game come back on Vogue. It allows us to do things like, Hey, Hey, Ronald Acuna is the first guy by the all-star break to have 20 homers, 40 stolen bases and 50 RBI. Uh, the stolen base is just like a statistical thing that we can appreciate again. Uh, how much do you love the return of the stolen base to, to the game of major league baseball?
4: You know, it's not just the stolen base that I enjoy. I think that the combination of rules between the extra runner, between throwovers, between pitch clock. It's just made for better baseball. It's hard to really describe that unless you're really watching a lot. But the idea that you can sit down and watch a two-hour game that is exciting and with a lot of movement, to me, I'm not going to say forget the numbers because you're right. It does allow us to compare things like that. But just watching the game is a more enjoyable experience, which is what the goal is to me overall. People say, oh, these games are getting in a certain time window. That's great. But I know that what I'm looking at is simply more exciting as somebody that watches a ton of games. And that was always the ultimate goal. And if guys are having more fun, there's more activity. This leads to a larger point that I say all the time. You don't have to convince people that baseball is cool. You need to get people to like the actual sport. And if the actual sport is improving in watchability and likability, well, then you have an improvement. And that's, I think, where we are. Commissioners aside, it's really become something that is, flat out more fun to watch as somebody who's always thought it's been fun to watch my entire life.
0: Well, yeah, you have, you are the, uh, the innovator of snag, grab, or stab. Uh, of course, anytime (laughs) there's a a huge catch around baseball, Clint, what's the origin of that? Is that just something that that came to be over tweeting about good catches for a long time? Because I mean, it feels like it's one of those things. Twitter has some of these things where like something feels like it's existed forever, but Twitter's not that old. It obviously hasn't existed forever. (laughs) What's the background of snag, grab, or stab?
4: If you are familiar with the glorious, glorious site and uh, profile that is Cespedes BBQ. Of course. That's my man Jake and Jordan. Jake and I actually played in the same baseball program 15 odd years apart. We're both from D.C. We talk about baseball all the time. This was literally just an outcrop of me and Jake's group tech that we (laughs) would talk about catches on all the time. And I took it to the Internet, and it became a thing. It's fun because it's a way to highlight parts of the game that are not necessarily always highlighted. I happen to like base running and fielding. Those are my favorite parts of baseball. Most people, it's pitching and hitting. Not me. For example, right now, I'm looking at my television screen, and Ellie De La Cruz is on second base against the Nationals. This guy could be running 800s in the Olympics, never mind going first or third like nobody else. So base running is one thing, but fielding is another. It was my favorite part of playing, and so I felt like it's something to do. You know, I keep it in the thread. It's always just kind of a natural reaction. There's no real definition of snag, grab, or stab. It's just what comes to mind, (laughs) the way to highlight people that do fun things on the ball field.
0: I have no idea how we would do this, but I always think, and I'm with you, I mean, hitting and pitching are cool, but base running and fielding are also awesome. And base running and fielding, I don't know, I think back to like playing in the, in the yard or at the park or whatever. And it's like, okay, well, you're setting your friends up to do like diving catches. You're not necessarily, not everyone can hit a home run. Everyone can play a game of pickle and do some divers and stuff like that. I don't know how we would do this, but do you have any ideas for how we integrate that stuff into part of all-star weekend, similar to how basketball does, you know, the three point shootout and slam dunk contest and those other events that we don't really talk about. Um, you know, in addition to the home run derby, could we highlight the snap grass geez, I'm tripping over the words. Could we highlight it's the fielding side, the base running side?
4: You know, I, I don't know how to do that. And I think that the first place I would start to think about that is any place where you've got a decent baseball camp running because that's kind of what you do. It's sort of got a <laughs> camp element and look at that, Ellie just got the third. But uh I don't know. I mean I'm not like I, I look, it would be great, but again, there's enough baseball as is, you know, and I this is the thing I say all the time to folks. People want to they see something and like, well I want it on the big stage before I'm gonna say that I really like it. Bro, just watch the games. Like they're all there, you know, and that's kind of where I am on this. It would be fantastic if there was some kind of a I don't know if you Take homers back over the wall kind of thing, but that risk injury and that's just really not necessary, especially when there's a hundred freaking sixty games sixty-two games a year where you could watch this on your own. And so I do think that there is an element that's missing from the overall like skills competition element of the All-Star Game. But at the same time, there's a million things that would change about All Star Game Weekend before it it's that, you know, and that's that's just kind of where I am. The number one being I would bring back letting players wear their own home uniforms on the field. That's what I would do, but that's just me.
0: Yeah. I I love that look. And I I have to wonder, like, I, I understand why it's, they want to be able to sell all-star jerseys, but like they can't sell a lot. Right.
4: They're not very nice jerseys. Kids like, them. it's big travel ball energy on them. That's why they're so modern. I remember when we were in Denver, people were like, what are these? They don't look like anything I've ever seen before. I'm like, well, you haven't been on a field that didn't involve major league baseball players (laughs) clearly in 20. Like, you know what I mean? like." jerseys look wild now by the by you know and that's just is what it is but the reason i think that it would make sense is because it would allow people to feel a little bit more connected to their hometown teams i like get the merch element you know whatever do it for the home run derby do it for every other thing you do even for warm-ups for that matter but for the game people want to see what they voted whom they voted for and i think that would be a sort of a, a fun little switch on something even if you did it every other year
0: I'm with you. All right, I think it's a, it's a cooler look and makes for a more fun game. Clinton, last one before I let you go. Uh, the, we have a home run derby field. Adley Rutschman, Pete Alonso, Randy Rosarena, Mookie Betts, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Julio Rodriguez. Keeping in mind you're on a Toronto radio station right now, maybe you want to pop the home crowd. Uh, do you have a lean in the home run derby?
4: Sorry, gang, but it's going to be Adley Rushman from Baltimore. That kid is a hoss and a half. I covered him when he played at Oregon State. I got to see him play quite a few times, and he's doing great things for my favorite squad in the big right now. I don't mean the team that I'm rooting for. I just mean the team that I'm liking as far as how they're doing things at this exact moment, the Baltimore Orioles. I think he's got a swing that's not going to be forcing him to feel about repeatability all the time. He's just going to try to mash it out of the park every single time. Adley Rushman's going to win that thing, in my opinion. All right. right, had- feel Alonzo.
0: We've had two guests today, and nobody has picked Vladimir Guerrero Jr. The, the other guest was Randy
4: Rosarina. Okay, well, so. hold on. Let me, let, me, let me say something quickly. I was in Cleveland when he lost to Pete Alonso. I will, say yep. this very, I will say this very flatly. It was the best home run derby I've ever been to. <laughs> Balls were leaving the yard at a rate that was unbelievable, and he didn't even win. You know what I mean? So, sure, Vladimir Jr. in there is great, but I just don't think he's going to win.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a studded field and these things are difficult to win. That's the, that's the whole point of them. Uh, Clinton Yates. Thanks so much for taking the time out, man. Enjoy a day full of baseball, 15 games schedule staggered perfectly. You don't need to leave the couch if you don't want to.
4: Bingo bango kiddos. Talk to you soon.
0: Clinton Yates of ESPN and around the horn. uh, One of the absolute best people to talk to about baseball. Uh, We've got baseball tonight. The Toronto blue Jays back in action. Chris Bassett against Lucas Giolito. This series will then go Jose Brios against Lance Lynn. Yusei Kikuchi against a big old TBA on Thursday. Uh, Banks would be the guy starting, um, Tanner Banks rather, would be the guy starting on regular rotation, but they're having to do some things right now around some injuries and some juggling could be one of those situations too where uh, they look at, you know, what shape the bullpen is in and things like that. That's surely familiar to you. Banks is kind of bounced back and forth between a uh, long, like short starter and long bullpen guy. Anyway, what that means for the Jays is that they have bumped the last bullpen day that they'll need before the all-star break to the weekend against Detroit. We'll see Gosman and Bassett in some order there as well. I mentioned it a little earlier, but in case you missed it, Hyunjin Ryu is going to start today down in the FCL. Uh, so that gets the 30 day clock going on his Rehab assignment Um, it has Sounded good from a how He feels how he looks conditioning All that stuff standpoint Uh, but the big Thing to listen for coming out of This one will be uh, the velocity because He was down around 88 the last update That we heard Blair and Barker with you five to seven today. They'll also have you for Jays Talk post game. The Jeff Merrick show is coming up next. Jays Talk Plus will be back at 10 a.m. tomorrow to break down what is hopefully a game where the Blue Jays move back in the right direction after getting swept by the Red Sox. Maybe they can beat a pretty lowly White Sox team. But as Joe Siddle reminded you, there are no soft spots in the schedule when you're playing baseball at a poor level like the Blue Jays are uh, right now. Thanks, to James Vegan. Clint Yates, John Morosi, Chris Black for coming on. Thanks to Dick Blackmore behind the glass, uh, filling in for Jeff party today, and uh, Synergy with me, both wearing Muhammad Ali shirts today. Unplanned. Uh, thanks to Lance Kennedy and Jennifer Rolnick behind the glass as well. We'll be back at 10 a.m. tomorrow on Jays Talk Plus on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 590 The Fan.